0: The start of Numbers 14 should have been a watershed moment in the nation of Israel. They had arrived at the very border of crossing over into that land that God had promised to them and to their forefathers. They were within reach of entering into their rest. No more a wandering people. No more of having to gather the manna. No more of having to reverse through that great and terrible wilderness. Having considered the report that Caleb and Joshua gave where he said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. It should have been a chapter that starts with joy, that starts with a happiness, even an anticipation of what God had in store for them and of his promises being fulfilled. After all, It was God who had guided them this far. He had brought them right from the land of Egypt. He had delivered them by the miracle at the Red Sea. He had protected them from their enemy and from the heat of the noonday sun. He had given them water from the rock. He had given them the manna, even every morning. And if God had supplied their every need in the short space of time, we're talking about two years since leaving Egypt, Then there was every encouragement for them to trust them for what was to come. And you know, men and women, it's the same truth where it concerns the people of God. The Lord who has saved us is the Lord who's keeping us and who has blessed us in measure abundantly. He's able to bless for what lies before us in the future. And we should have the spirit of seeking to go forward in Jehovah's will Though the billows dash and spray. That's how the hymn writer puts it. But alas, how often is not like that. And how often is just like what we read with Israel. For instead of a joy, instead of an anticipation and unhappiness of enjoying the promises that God has given and that God has set apart for us, there's an expression of unbelief. And that unbelief in our heart often manifests itself in a displeasing manner. And that certainly was how the people reacted to what they had heard from these spies as we've considered in chapter 13. It's a terrible reaction. I can't put it or describe it any other way. It's a terrible reaction. The first ten spies made sure that they exaggerated their report in order to carry the day and the people they duly follow along. What we have following these verses is simply their rebellion. I want you to note this morning the response of the assembly. There's a lifting up of the voice. There's a crying. Instead of joy or happiness, words that we might have anticipated to see it, verse 1, we see rather there's a lifting up of their voice, there's a crying. Their crying indicates an acceptance of the majority report. It indicates a rejection of the minority. Or to put it like this, they chose to go the way of unbelief instead of the way of faith. And despite what the devil and this world would betray that way, that way always ends up in sorrow. The believer is always the one whose real lasting joy, he is real happiness. And the unbeliever has eternal sorrow. And the Lord even was to use such words of that eternal sorrow in hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. But in heaven, God shall wipe away every tear. There were no more tears there. And on earth, now, therefore, there is the battle between, waged between unbelief and faith. Unbelief generally is the more popular. Unbelief is the one that attracts more attention and noise. But remember, it is the way of sorrow, for those pleasures of this world only last for a season. And you will know the seasons come and the seasons go. You notice the criticism of the people here. Their criticism is leveled at the leaders because of the land and ultimately against the Lord. They murmured against Moses and you'll notice verse 2 it's also includes Aaron. All the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. Not too long ago we noted of how Aaron got himself into the wrong company. And he got himself under the side of criticism with Miriam. But Aaron had learned his lesson. And now Aaron is firmly standing alongside Moses again. And he is part of the criticism. They aren't happy about the land either. They aren't happy about the life that they lived. They wish that they were already dead rather than conquer Canaan. Men and women, that's how far unbelief will take a man. They say in verse 2, Would to God that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or good God that we had died in this wilderness. Be careful what you wish for. For these people did die in the wilderness. They never did get into the promised land. In the next 38 years, it follows the, from Kadesh Barnea, they were corpses in the wilderness. The real problem the greatest insult of all is that they criticize the Lord. Verse 3. And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto the land to fall by the sword and our wives and our children should be a prey. Now the real problem is revealed. They did not like God's way for their life. They're trying very hard to make it sound as if God didn't care about them. I just want you to consult verse 27. We didn't read it this morning. But I want you to turn to it. Because here's the Lord speaking in reply to Moses and Aaron. He says, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? See that? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. It's not against Moses and Aaron, it's not even against the life that they lived or trod in the land that was before them. Against the Lord. The criticism of the leaders was, in effect, criticism against God Himself. And God takes it personal. Unbelief doesn't bring forth a good response when it begins with criticism. You consider they desired a new captain, verse 4. They said one to another, Let us make a captain, let us return into Egypt. They form an unsensical conclusion. It is that it would be better for them to return back to the land to which they came from. Their rebellion was man-centered. It says in that verse 4 that they said one to another. The decision that they arrived at was found among themselves, believing the majority had more wisdom than God. Let us make a captain. They didn't like God's choice of captain. And so they would appoint one who represented them and who was in agreement with a rebellion against God. I wonder, did they stop and ever think, how were they ever going to get back to Egypt if they had a new captain? As one commentary asked, did they expect God's cloud still to cover them and protect them? How would they ever get across the Red Sea? And if they did get across the Red Sea into the land of Egypt again, what sort of hospitality did they expect from the Egyptians? The Egyptians that they had deserted from and brought so much ruin upon that they think they would be welcome with open arms. You see, men and women, just how foolish their conclusion was it would be better if we go back to Egypt. But to achieve that, they would need a new captain. One to replace Moses. And you know what I've often said to you, the scriptures are the best commentary in themselves. And we come across a very interesting verse in Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 17 actually tells us that was exactly what they did. Nehemiah is speaking about the forefathers. And he says... And they refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and forsookest them not. They appointed a captain in order to return back to their bondage. Child of God, never say to yourself, it's better if I was back in the world. That's what Egypt represents in the scriptures. There's maybe many a child of God would think to themselves, it's better if I was back there. And maybe even will make steps to go back there. And it is not the same truth found also in Many Christian circles today, they want to go their own way. It will mean maybe in some cases a new pastor. And more often than not, that new pastor, that new captain will come from among them. Not a shepherd whom God has sent, but rather a hireling. Who's more more interested in desiring to please men than to please God. What it did show, however, was that Moses was no compromiser. He would only lead Israel as God guided and directed him to to do so. And that's a great compliment for Moses. It tells us that he wasn't prepared to bend to their will. If they wanted to go back to their bondage in Egypt, they would need a new captain because he wasn't taking them back. Do you see the commentary on this response? They had all the counsel that they needed from Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb. But they didn't heed that counsel. And I want you to please note it. You can take a little pencil or a pen and note it. Verse 1, it's all the congregation. Verse 2, and all the children of Israel... Again in verse 2, the whole congregation. And you will see those words uh, uh, repeated again in verse 7 and in verse 10. This is not just a a little minority. This is all the congregation are assembled. They refused the the council to trust God and his promises. Unbelief, you see, had spread throughout the camp that virtually all Israel were infected. And you notice the question that they asked? Wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword? Verse 3. To fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey. They directly accused the Lord God of sin and of doing evil to them. They accused him of plotting to murder them their wives and their children. God who can do no evil, with whom there is no shadow of turning. He was called evil. He's accused of murder by his own people. I want you to come to Psalm 95. Because there you'll see the commentary that God places on it. Psalm 95. Look at the words of verse 8. God says through his servant he says harden not your heart as in the provocation as in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me proved me and saw my work the word provocation means strife or contention they tried and tested God despite seeing his work all his works. Verse 9. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. And Men and women, I bring you to that Psalm 95. Because that is the very Psalm that the Apostle Paul Quotes in Hebrews chapter 3. To solemnly warn us against unbelief. I think I've directed you to Hebrews 3 before in our previous studies. You just read again with me verse 7 and 8. It says, Wherefore as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. There's the Psalm 95. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. It would be better if I could go back to the world. Is that what you've said? The apostle warns, it's an evil thing, it's an evil heart to have unbelief. Take heed. There's the commentary. Let us guard against unbelief at the most critical point of our life. The most critical point of your life may be where you're being challenged at this present time. Your faith has been challenged. That's a critical point. And it certainly was a challenge at this time where Israel is on the very border of entering in, of having heard the report, and particularly the majority report of those 12 spies. Let me show you, secondly, also the reasons for advancing here. All that Moses could do, we read that he fell down, him and Aaron fell with their faces before the assembly of the congregation. They get to prayer. And we're going to see that at a later stage, particularly Moses praying. But it showed, along with the others, their disapproval of sin and evil. Something, of course, that we need to be strong against in this our day. We need to disapprove sin. And be disapproval of sin. What does that look like? It may look like that you'll have to walk out of the canteen in the, uh, in the business, in the workplace when the dirty jokes are been told or when God's name has been taken in vain. It may mean withdrawing support from those who openly support sin and you'll tell them why. We don't approve of Sunday opening. And I might have said to you some weeks ago that the business in the town that we uh, brought that before last year, he he was fit to send us an email of what he was going to be doing this year with no assurance that it will ever be repeated again. But he knows where this congregation stands with regard to Sunday trading. That's just one example. How many businesses have gone in for sodomy in these days? We don't approve of sin. And we are to protest against sin. That's maybe not a word that we hear much these days. Hasn't changed, men and women. God hasn't changed. God's word hasn't changed. And Moses protested against their sin. And they proceeded to tell them good reasons as to why they should go forward in faith. The first reason I've said to you that Moses and Aaron fell to the ground. They don't really major in speaking with the people. We're going to see that those who spoke this time was Joshua. Caleb had spoken in chapter 13, bringing the report. Joshua now steps forward. So Moses and Aaron don't really major on it. But they do say something before they they get to prayer. And that you will find in Deuteronomy chapter 1. I've taken you to Deuteronomy last time around. And here we go back again. Because Moses brings them back, they're standing on the river edge of the River Jordan. He brings them back to where they were standing at Kadesh Barnea thirty-eight years previous, and he says in verse thirty, "The Lord your well." I read verse twenty-nine. Then I said, "I said unto you, dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God which goeth before you, ye shall fight for you according to all that He did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness, where thou hast seen how the Lord thy God." Bear thee as a man doth bear his son in all the way that you went until you came into this place. He's reminding them what he said to them at this juncture. His argument was, you've seen all that God has done in bringing you to this very place of Kadesh Barnea. And if he could do that, then surely he could defeat any opposition that you might come across entering into the land of promise. He's telling them that God was capable in bringing them into the land. Remember what the Lord did for you. How you've seen all his work and how he bare bear you like a a father with a son. He's carried you along. He's able to overcome any opposition. Let me ask this morning, am I preaching to someone you're facing a particular trial? You're facing a particular hurdle that's testing your faith. Then look at how God has delivered and helped you in the past. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He knows no change. Look at the Scriptures. See what God has done for others. That will be all the incentive that you'll need to go forward, even in the midst of your trial. Romans 15 In the words of verse 4, to verse, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The Scriptures are written for our learning. Those things written aforetime. That's why you don't discard the Old Testament. So many lessons. So many examples. And they're for our learning that we may, through patience and comfort, have that hope. Press on. Why? because God has delivered you in the past uh, through many a trial. That's what Moses is saying to the people. Another argument was the condition of the land. It was an excellent land, for Caleb and Joshua had witnessed it for themselves. And I have said to you that these men step forward. And Joshua in particular, verse 6, is heard to speak. And verse 7 says, they speak, both of them, unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which ye passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey, rather than despising the land. As they had done so, listening to the majority report, or the majority of the spies, they should have been those who desired it. The land, without exaggeration, was exceeding good. That should have been a sufficient motivation for them to go forward and to possess it. But alas, but alas, they listen to the wrong people. And you know, the same happens to this day. People listen to the ungodly scientists or the ungodly professors. That student has placed in front of them ungodly facts, which are not facts, they're just theories of how this world came about. They listen to apostate ministers. They listen to the liberal society. So then why should we wonder when we see so many have distorted morals, have depraved morals, they have the morals of the beast in the field. Let's just bring it down and be brutally honest. In fact, there are some animals that that are better morals than some people have. And why many despise Christ. And why many do not think well of him or of the scriptures. Are we surprised when they listen to all of that? All of the liberal society out there. And to the apostate ministers who don't believe half the Bible. When we, when we realize that they listen to all the, 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 the nonsense about millions of years. That's pumped out and into our children. Are we surprised of all of this? Joshua says. It's a good land. There's an argument for you to go and possess it. It is exceeding good. Another argument why they should go forward was because of what Joshua highlights in verse 9. And that was the condition of the people. He says, Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. For they're bread for us. Their defense is departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Fear them not. What a verse. What a word. He had seen them. He had seen them with his own two eyes. The majority described them as being too strong. How different, however, is his description. He says they're bred for us. Their defense is departed. Now, I think we've got to explain that. So that we might understand what that means, their defence is departed. Literally, it, it means, or it could be read like this: their shadow is gone, their shadow is departed, and it indicates what shielded them. It's likened, if you like, to a cloud, and you know, of course, a cloud will shadow the rays of the hot sun. And so, free is used as a, a, a figure of speech in those times to indicate a turn for the worse. Their defense is departed from them. Their shadow is departed. It indicated that the favor of God was now lost to those inhabitants. And if we come back to Genesis 15, there you'll remember what God said to Abram. And in looking at what God said to Abram, we get the full picture of what this phrase means. Genesis 15, in the words of verse 15, God speaking to Abram. made a covenant with him. He says, Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Abram was told he would live a long time. But he says this, But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. That is, the children. his posterity. The people that the Lord would bless. The nation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Abraham, the fourth generation, they're going to come out of that land again. He's told them they're going into a strange land. They'll come again. Why will it take four generations? It's because the, Amorite, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You see, their sin hadn't reached the brim of the cup yet, but now it has. Their iniquity had reached the very brim. God's timeline is reached, and God now has withdrawn his favor from them. Their defense has departed. It's time that his people entered in. Because he had blessed the people Israel. There weren't too many of them when Abram was about. Those just 70 souls went down into Egypt. They're now in their millions. Four generations later. And so while the inhabitants of the land may have looked strong. When God's mercy had departed from them and his favor rested upon Israel. That's why Joshua can say You know what? They're just bread for us. Joshua emphasized that while their defense was departed he said the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Israel should have listened they should have accepted this argument for when God is for us then no force of man, beast or the devil can overcome us. What an argument to go forward and to possess. The Lord is with us. Their defense is departed. There's another command that Joshua gave to those assembled. You look at the words of verse 9 again. He says, There only rebel ye not, uh, not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people. He repeats it again at the end of the verse. Fear them not. Moses had said the very same thing. I read it in Deuteronomy 1 and verse 29. The majority had created much fear, but no faith. The minority would encourage faith. And fear would be removed if they advanced by faith. And the other command was that they were not to be disobedient. Only rebel ye not against the Lord. The Lord's help was conditional upon them obeying in verse 8. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Disobedience, you see, removes God's help. The sad thing is, they weren't concerned about whether God was delighted with them or not. I wonder, does that ever cross your mind? Is the Lord delighting in me? Is the Lord pleased with me? Is the Lord pleased with my walk last week? Is the Lord pleased with what I'm doing or where I'm going? Do you ever ask yourself, "Is the Lord pleased with me?" It's not with man; it's what God thinks. You know, it certainly was something that Paul desired when he wrote to young Timothy. Second Timothy two. Let me just read it. And the words of verse four, he says this: He says, "No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who had chosen him to be a soldier." He's using the analogy of a soldier to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And in a, if you're a soldier in an army, you don't entangle yourself with the other things of, of life. You're focused on the battle at hand. You're focused on the task that is before you. You're focused on your captain. And that's what Paul says. He says that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. He wanted to please the Lord who had chosen him. And you know, that was something that Christ could say in his earthly ministry. John chapter eight twenty nine says this, And he sent he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. That's a powerful statement. I do always those things that please him. And men and women, we certainly have the prayer, the desire to be more Christ-like, to please the Lord. Arguments are going forward. Let me just show you the reply of the Almighty. Because rather than reconsidering their response, they had their minds closed to the truth as spoken by these four men. Rather than rise up, rather than possess the land, all the congregation bid them stone them with stones. Verse 10, they wouldn't tolerate the truth. They were incensed against them. Their heart was fully set on them to do evil. But you know, God is faithful to his servants. And his intervention prevented them from carrying out their intent. And what was that intervention? The glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle. The people had to stand back. The cloud had descended again. What was needed, as we learn from these verses, is the need for the people to be reconciled to God if they were going to be spared from being wiped out altogether. That reconciliation would come forth by Moses interceding for them. He gets to prayer. As I said, we'll not have time to look at that this morning. But I want you to see why this was needful when you listen to the reply that Almighty God gives. He asks in verse 11, How long will this people provoke me? How long will they despise the Lord? How long would they be disbelieving? It says, How long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? Despite all the signs and the wonders that God had showed them in their deliverance from Egypt, they still were unbelieving. The main cause of their problem, the main cause of provoking the Lord God at Kadesh Barnea was their unbelief. That was the cause of their sin and of their behavior. And God indicates that he records how long sinners rebel, how long sinners despise him. He asks how long twice over in that verse 11. God knows how long sinner you persist in provoking him. And the longer that the sinner provokes the Lord then, so much the more it is displeasing to him. Israel had provoked God right through the journey from Egypt up until this present point in time when they were on the very border of entering into the land of promise and the land of rest. When God asked, How long? Then it indicates that there is a limit to his patience. There's a limit to day, the day of God's grace. And God says, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Israel had no excuse for their sin. And Almighty God makes that obvious when he says, For all, for all the signs which I have showed among them. Those signs included the parting of the Red Sea. Those signs included giving the water from the rock, turning the bitter waters into sweet waters. Those signs included the revelations of Almighty God at Mount Horeb, showing His glory. He showed His presence also to be continually with them by the cloudy pillar and by the pillar of fire by night. Israel had so many signs to encourage their faith. They could not be justified in the slightest for their own belief, and yet is the same not true of many? Who sit under the gospel preached today? We have the written word. We have the warnings of God where sin is taking us to, and we have the message of hope as presented in the gospel of Christ. People are without excuse. You're not justified in the slightest for your unbelief. And God knows, sinner, how long you have rejected him. How long? God's answer for their provocation was that he would judge them. And in verse 12, there's two parts to that judgment. There's death and there's disinheritance. God would start a fresh nation with Moses. Severe judgment was coming. And you know, so it is with the Christ rejecter. Condemnation already hangs upon those who have rejected Christ. John chapter 3 reminds us of that. We're condemned already. But that Christ rejecter, if they go on in their, in their ways, shall know God's eternal judgment in the flames of hell. Accept, man, woman, young person, accept you're reconciled to a holy God. How can you be at peace with God? It's only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and that once for all sacrifice that He offered in Calvary. For there. Through his blood, he made peace with God. You can be peace with God. You can be reconciled to God this morning. God was angry with Israel because they held him in contempt. They refused to believe. Men and women, God has provided the way of salvation through the person of his son. Do not show contempt anymore. But rather. Believe what he has said. He has shown you the truth. He says I am the way. The truth and the life. No man cometh unto the father. But by me. It's through Christ alone. And that's why I simply stayed in closing. The words of 2nd Corinthians 5 and 20. Be ye. Reconciled to God. You can be reconciled to God this morning, sitting in the pew. If you will, but repent of your sin and turn to Christ by faith. May the Lord bless His word to our heart this morning. For his own namesake. We'll stand and sing in closing five hundred and fifty-six. <clears throat> we never need be vanquished, we never need give in. Waging war with Satan, encompassed round by sin, temptation will beset us, allurements off the seal, but in the name of Jesus we shall, we must, prevail. Let's we'll, uh, sing verses 1 and 3. 1 and 3, let's stand as we sing 556. Five, we thank thee for thy word Lord we see the warnings even of the rebellion of the children of Israel and the unbelief the rejection of the arguments is why they would go forward in faith we pray that we might guard against unbelief we might rest in thy promises Lord we consider how this even this hymn ends he is our shield he is our banner Christ is all we need we pray, Lord, that we might keep our gaze fixed upon the captain of our salvation. Pray, Lord, that those who are not saved, that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, even this morning, and be reconciled to thee. Part us now with thy blessing. Bring us back again tonight, and I will give us a good Sabbath. We pray these things in our Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.